Hello, and welcome back to the Pipeline Superhero Podcast, hosted as always by Grant Cohen. We always feature SaaS founders, operators, investors, go-to-market experts. Today, we have Kendall Coons, five-time founder and business nerd, founder and CEO of Forms on Fire, uh, a new uh, solution for mobile form cloud apps. Kendall, tell us about Forms on Fire, and how are you doing today? I am doing very well. It's a beautiful day in the Seattle area. Mm -hmm. I actually traveled away from my home to downtown Bellevue for lunch with a new employee and the sun was shining the whole way and, you know, there and back. So I had my sunglasses on. That's very unusual to do in March in the Seattle area. So thanks for asking Mm -hmm. and uh, glad to, glad to be joining you on the podcast. My name is Kendall Mm -hmm. Coons and I'm the founder and CEO of Forms on Fire. I am a five-time entrepreneur this is probably my last company, although I've said that for the last two companies. Mm-hmm. So we'll see if that comes true. Forms mm-hmm. on Fire, uh, what we do, we help IT directors and directors of operations in mid to large size companies to rapidly deploy mobile data collection apps at a massive scale. It's a cloud-based mobile application development, no-code development uh, platform. And uh, yeah, excited to to be here to talk to you about that and the history and whatever else you want to ask. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Yeah. Bellevue, that's Microsoft town, correct? It is Bellevue and Redmond. So Redmond is Mm kind of where their headquarters is, but they have a massive scale uh, in Bellevue. And and actually, uh, Amazon is getting quite a scale in Bellevue as well. They're building quite a number Mm -hmm. of high rises there. So yeah, yeah. What was the moniker? Was it like the the monster of Redmond or the Wizards of Redmond, something like that? It could have been something like that. And you know, I remember reading a, a venture capitalist article some ten years ago that said, you know, if Microsoft really wants to be serious, they need to move their entire headquarters down to Silicon Valley. Well, you know, the Seattle area has kind of become the cloud capital, cloud computing capital of the world. So I think they were smart to stay here. Yeah. And it's a beautiful area of the country to boot, I'd say. Um, awesome. My freshman roommate was actually from Bellevue, Bellevue. random roommate, also named Grant. Very um, confusing at times when people were bursting into our dorm room, but that's neither here nor there. Um, that's so random. Five, what college was that in? Northwestern in Chicago, Illinois. He was actually nice. from, okay. yeah, he was from Bellevue named Grant. Okay. Small world. Yeah. Uh, that, he was a Microsoft kid. Um, not to out him right. too much, but yeah, you could probably awesome. get him on LinkedIn if you had all the demographic information at this point. Um, <laughs> but that's, you know, that's that STR in me. Um, but anyway, so tell us about Forms on Fire and like how that became your mission. Because, you know, as you said, multiple time entrepreneur. So something must have really, you know, created a, an emotional, yeah. uh, you know, desire for you to to launch an, uh, a company in this space. Yeah, that's that's a great question. And uh, so, yeah, the history is it, it kind of went like this. Um in, uh, in 2009, I started a company called Bellevue Technology Partners in Bellevue, Washington. Um, and that company was centered around providing consulting help, uh, specifically project managers and analysts uh, to many of the local companies around here. And that project management focus, you know, won us uh, a lot of projects in you know, companies like Starbucks and Microsoft and Providence Health, and again, many of the, the larger companies around here. We, were, we had project managers helping them deliver IT projects, software development projects, both in-house as well as you know, packaged application implementations. 
And frankly, I was getting quite bored with it. I'd been there, done that. We, you know, it, was, it, it turned into mostly staffing and I wasn't involved in the projects. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I'm, I have both a technical and a business background and I just felt like there was this, this technical itch that was missing and I needed to get back into it. And so I, I went and heard a guy speak in Seattle named Eric Reese, who uh, he wrote the book, The Lean Startup. And he had, he had just launched the book. In fact, the day he launched it, I, I went to hear him speak. And I wow. got a copy of his book and I read about the lean startup and building a minimum viable product and how to test things. And I said, man, I wish I knew about the minimum viable product when I started my game company called Kickplay because I could have saved a whole lot of money to prove some of the basic assumptions that we had were incorrect. Mm-hmm. So I thought, you know, I can apply these principles to doing something you know, new. And so what was popular at the time? Well, cloud computing, social and mobile. And the interesting thing about mobile is that was just shortly after the iPad was released. And what you could really see in the iPad was that you could take a paper form and you could replace it using, you know, a a generic uh, commoditized device and you didn't need millions of dollars. Like the only people who were actually doing forms in those days were companies like DHL and UPS and FedEx, where they could spend millions, hundreds of millions of dollars to build these things you could actually figure out how to build and and collect information on a paper form and have it go into the cloud. And so that really was the the genesis of it. What we did is out of Bellevue Technology Partners, we ran a number of experiments in cloud, in mobile, and then also in social. And this was kind of the thing that we landed on was a mobile form uh, capability. And it's it's just gone from sort of, you know, an interesting idea to, Wow, clients really love our product. The product market fit is phenomenal, and it's just it's just become explosive uh, in terms of adoption in the companies where we're working across the world, uh, at all levels, in almost every industry. And we're really we're, we've really niched down to several different sort of vertical industries to drive faster growth as we've scaled. But uh, yeah, it's just been phenomenal. Couldn't be happier in terms of the way the clients talk about our product. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that. Hearing that, and you know, having done some research on the company as well, it sounds like a really, honestly, straightforward and, and perfect manifestation of a lot of the lean startup um, ideals, especially niching down. Like you mentioned um, that just previously, and I was looking through. You know, you have a, a post about how you're ranking really highly on G2 Crowd, usability meets requirements, results, etc. And usually, when you have really high customer scores, especially relatively early on in the company. I know you've been at Forms and Fire for a while now. Um, it means that you've found that niche and you've found it well. And I, looking through the niches listed there, it's construction, environmental services, facilities, management, retail, or consumer goods. Like those are ultra specific. Um, and I find that like with startups that are led by ambitious founders, especially when they're still doing founder-led sales, they have like these big grandiose ideas of what their product can do. And they, you know, they have the vision and if they didn't have the vision, they wouldn't want to be the founders, but sometimes it's hard for them to niche down and to understand like, okay, I really need to focus on the construction vertical. And maybe it's not the sexiest thing in the world. Maybe, you know, the TAM doesn't go off the charts. My, you know, uh, equity is going to be worth 10 X in two years, but you create a really good product and you have really good client react uh, interactions. And I think that finding those niches um, is, you know, in its own way, product market fit, but with an extra level of nuance. So curious how um, you found those niches specifically and what, you know, founders can learn from, you know, how to niche down, not necessarily just niching down, but like there's the mechanism to doing that. 
Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Uh, honestly, um, I think we got lucky in a lot of those industries. We were not as purposeful as I think we could have been. <laughs> and what I mean by that is, I, I think that in each one of those industries where we began to do well, take you know food and beverage, food and beverage grocery or food and beverage uh, manufacturing, um, we actually had we we bumped into some early adopters who were who really believed in the same way that I believed you could take these iPads and these new phone devices that we have and actually turn them into a commoditized device to capture paper forms. And so they were on the lookout for that. It generally didn't come from the IT department though, right? So it was other people that were maybe in operations, maybe in quality assurance, maybe in food safety, uh, maybe in the construction operation side where they found out about us. And these individuals were they were early adopters. And so they adopted our application and they're like, wow, we can do this with it. And then next thing you know, we get introduced into to IT and then IT introduces us into, you know, other organizations and we end up, you know, they end up having, you know, 10, 20, 30, 50 applications in use. And they just, it's amazing. The return on investment that they're getting is, is massive. And so for us, it was more luck that we got into that. Now what we've, what we've, what we believe that we are trying to do now with it is since we do have this social proof, right, in these various vertical industries, like in construction, uh, like in uh, even manufacturing or environmental, as you mentioned, retail, food and beverage retail, we're leveraging that by advertising to individuals, by having our sales development reps reaching out and talking to individuals in those vertical industries, and then showing them uh, through both uh, prototypes, and we have a catalog of over 200 applications now that people can start with uh, as they're building their apps, and then be able to use those references and say, hey, you know, look at, we've got, you know, the second largest grocer in the United States that uses our application. We've got, you know, the sixth largest food processor in the world that uses our application. We have the largest uh, makers and distributors of shell eggs in the United States that, you know, distributes 1.3 billion dozen eggs a year. Uh, we have some of the largest engineering and construction companies that use our applications, some of the largest environmental companies, uh, emergency management companies, those kinds of things. We use that social proof to really gain that traction with each of those verticals. And so again, it was, I, I believe it was luck by the grace of God, we were able to, to get that social proof. And we, you know, it was just such a great product market fit that they just have used it for many different things. And that's helped us to then pick those niches and niche down. Mm -hmm. Have you found, so how does one of the applications get generated? Is that something created by the user? Do you have like a customer success organization that does that? Because it seems like there'd be some network effects of the more people that create applications, maybe public facing within the forms on fire platform, the more value to each, you know, uh, subsequent uh, client. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, in terms of uh, in terms of applications that that do get designed, we actually don't share a client's designs with with other companies, but we certainly know what's possible. And so, let's let me take you through it really quick, mm -hmm. um, please. First of all, first of all, the the platform is a is considered a no code application mm -hmm. platform, right? So you don't need to be a programmer in order to design an app. It's all on the app side. It's all drag and drop. You just what fields do you want in there, and what are the business rules? The business rules are Excel-like. So if you're good at Excel, you're gonna be great at designing with our platform. We have had clients, Grant, that have come to us where they hired an intern. They said, I know there's gotta be an application out there that does this sort of mobile data collection. Go out there and find one and build us something. 
literally, well, they'll, they'll hire a college intern. Next thing you know, they've designed this elaborate application for a giant logistics company, right? That services the likes of BMW and Daimler-Benz and, you know, some of these companies. And it's just amazing. We're, we're like, holy cow, look at what that little 19-year-old person who's a, you know, a, an exchange student from Germany built on our platform. And it does not take that much effort to figure out how to do it. In fact, you know, we have, we have IT directors who uh, went out and hired, you know, a plethora of, of programmers and tried to build something from scratch. So they build this thing from scratch. It takes them a year to build it, this mobile app. By the time they get it deployed, the user requirements have changed. So the users don't really like using the app because it's changed and the programmers have left the project. So now they need to find new programmers to come on, add to the project. Finally, the IT director said, there's gotta be a better way. And they literally came out, they, they found our application and that IT director and their VP, they built the whole thing over the weekends because it was not that hard to learn. It's a no code application tool set. So that's on the app side. And then on the reporting side, what's really interesting and unique about our product is that you get exactly the reports that you're used to seeing. So on a paper form, if you have a certain look and feel, you can get exactly that same look and feel because we, standard, we stand on the shoulders of Microsoft by utilizing either Microsoft Word or Excel as that report template. It integrates fully to our platform. So you design that report to look exactly like you want. Again, no code application tool sets uh, that you can just set up and deploy very, very rapidly. What is interesting though, is with each client that we get and all the new applications that they get, we share the ideas with them. We don't necessarily share the IP that they've designed on our proprietary mm -hmm. no-code tool set, but they know that it's possible. We'll put them in touch with clients. Sometimes they'll share information. There's a lot, there's a lot of kind of uh, network effect that you can get from that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Because I think what's fascinating is you see a lot of, I mean, I think that the low-code, no-code movement is in part, this is my opinion, a response to like these big developer communities that have evolved. And the big developer communities are great. And Microsoft famously, to, to continue that uh, example, utilized them for a lot of their early growth. And there's a lot of network effects of people playing around with their software. It's like the um, the wisdom of the masses. You know, There's a lot of people playing with something. They'll find that what's wrong with it. They'll build new things. Um, but what you're doing is you're creating developers out of your clients and you're creating it in such a way that the with the, the no-code platform that like you said in your own words, like an intern can create a beautiful solution with. Um, and then that could be like the business use cases can be transferred. So I, I can see your product naturally you know, evolving and expanding into new sectors because there's you know a lot of common business problems, you know, maybe between grocers and construction workers, you would know the actual applications of that better than me. That's really interesting. And um, so I, I also was really interested in the, the idea of form and function with the actual physical forms in place. But um, to that point, like, where do you see forms on fire growing into? Like, what do you think is next for you in the, the next couple of years? Is it adding new products, new verticals? Um, how do you think about that? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, just just back on your uh, your idea of no code, it, it reminds me about four years ago, um, you know, Apple has their developer conference every year. I think it's around the June timeframe, right? And they they had a uh, they had a slogan uh, for their Apple developers conference, and it was called "Write Code, Blow Minds." And we mm -hmm. just grabbed that mm -hmm. and we said, "Write no code." blow minds right there you we go just put a no in there and they absolutely yeah. love it and that's that's what happens is you 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 say no code so it's really a great question in terms of um 
you know, where do we go next? Where do we get the next uh, growth wave from? So first of all, I think that um, our existing client base is, uh, is a, you know, is, is a pretty significant, uh, like they're, they're kind of who's who a lot of fortune 500 companies that maybe they've used it in kind of a departmental way. I think our client success team is going to do, they're really starting to do a phenomenal job of proliferating that into lots of different departments in the companies that we already have relationships with. So we know that we're going to gain, gain, you know, garner a pretty significant growth out of that. And, uh, but yeah, to your, to your point, I think if you look at food and beverage, for example, and we have some, and we're really targeted on, you know, in the food and beverage, construction, environmental, some of those industries. Um, but if you look at food and beverage, where do you go from there? Well, you've got, you've got retail that's part of food and beverage. Why not just tangentially go to retail, right? And then you, you have retail that goes beyond food and beverage. There's, there's some things that you can look at that. And, you know, going back to a book from many years ago, Crossing the Cabin, Crossing the Chasm, what did they talk about? They talked about bowling pins, right? What's your first bowling pin? What are the tangential bowling pins that you can knock over that are similar to those, right? And so from food and beverage, you can knock over retail. From food and beverage, you can knock over manufacturing. And then from manufacturing, you know, there's all kinds of, there's process manufacturing, there's discrete manufacturing, there's a lot of different things that you have there. And we have social proof in, in, in particularly in process manufacturing, chemical companies, those kinds of things. Oil and gas is also a really, you know, a, a fresh area for us. So we, we think that there's a lot of growth there, but there also is growth in, in uh, becoming, like right now we're a single product company and we've done a phenomenal job as a, as a single product company. We've got some ideas for some other products. It's gonna change the face of the way that we do, uh, you know, the way that we roll out products, the way that we have to um, monitor products, the way that we have to support products. But having a multi-product company is gonna give us a lot of opportunity then to go back into those existing clients where they already love us. Uh, and, and we could do that in a number of ways. We could acquire other companies. We have some ideas about what we could develop internally. Uh, we've got a couple of ideas that we, we are, uh, work, that are being worked on in terms of you know, what that'll look like. So yeah, there's, 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 there's so much opportunity. And I think the company has more ideas than we really have the ability to execute, which is an interesting mm -hmm. challenge. I mean, you, mm -hmm. you mentioned about your podcast that uh, the different companies, you know, watch the podcast that are venture capitalists. And we are a bootstrap company and we want to remain a bootstrap company. It doesn't say we wouldn't bring on some capital, but we'd be very picky if we were to do any equity uh, sharing. We'd probably do it more with debt. And uh, so far, we've done a great job. Our clients have really, you know, continue to grow with us. And so anyway, but we, we do have some product, products underway or in mind. Uh, that we've been experimenting with. And yeah, we think there's just, there's a huge growth opportunity for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I like that you highlighted the go-to-market of new products with existing customers. Um, you know, in researching just a lot of companies for Bloom Growth and talking to, to partners, what I have found is that companies that market to existing customers, which is sort of like a taboo uh, at some companies, you think, oh, you know, they're a customer, don't market to them, don't, you know, bother them with this or that. Those uh, customers end up on average having like 2.2, uh, you know, orders of magnitude more revenue from those clients because they seem like they're in more part of a community, especially with a product that the more you interact with it, the better it gets like forms on fire. I find that really important, especially as you unveil new products. It's sort of like a video game, more of the downloaded content, you know, dive deeper into the universe. So that's really exciting. Um, yeah. And then like with the investment things, you know, like 
not everything is a VC backed company. I think everybody, you know, maybe that is from your uh, your different founding experience. I find that you know, first couple times someone's a founder, they're really excited about the VC and going to Sand Hill and and having that experience. But you know, sometimes yeah. you want to have more control over your business as well. And I'm not trying to make a moral judgment on either side of things, but um, you know, to that point, I wonder if that is like a lesson you've learned from your career and what what else you've learned from the fifth time founding a company because you know I'm. I'm I wouldn't say halfway through. I'm very early in the journey of my first one. Um, doing it again seems like a daunting challenge that would probably, you know, I could get to uh, mentally. But I'm just curious, like, you know, what what has you coming back and what you've really learned from like a just a founding company standpoint? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, first of all, if this is your first, um, if it's in your blood, it's hard to get out of your blood. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, and, and I always say that I'd, I'd probably be the first employee that I would fire because I break all the rules. Right? So uh, as a, as, as a founder, I, uh, yeah, there are certain things that I think, I think we do um, that are different than traditional, you know, some traditional companies. And then there's some things that we do that are identical to traditional companies. And there's a, there's a lot that can be learned from bringing on like a venture partner. Um, there's no question about it. And that partner can, can also introduce you to clients. They can introduce you to talent. They can introduce you to, to new concepts that maybe you hadn't thought of before and ideas. And we're certainly open to those ideas, but we we're, we want to be even more in tune to what is it that our clients want? What are they asking us to do? What do they want us to do next? Um, what do they like that we do now that we don't want to get rid of? Uh, many of our competitors that have have uh, similar businesses, and there are some out there that are similar to ours. We have you know certain key differentiators. I'm sure they have certain key differentiators. There are companies in our space that are being you know very successful. Some that are larger than we are, where they do have partners. And at, at every time that they've uh, taken a cash infusion from from venture capitalists, the very first thing that happens is they raise their prices. We just haven't raised our prices on our clients. We we've raised prices to the market, but we've never raised prices to our clients. Um, and we think that that's a really important aspect for them to have trust with us. And you know, you talked a little bit about um, going back to our existing clients and selling new things. Whenever you develop a relationship with a new prospect, what's the most important thing for them to buy from you? It's trust. I think mm-hmm. I think it's trust. Mm-hmm. Yes, you have to you have to prove that they have a pain, that they have a problem that you can solve, and that you can do it inside their budget, and that you'll be able to support them in a the long term, right? But if they don't trust you, they're not going to buy from you. Well, if your customers already trust you, and they're already buying from you, and they repeat buying from you all the time, and they keep buying more and more and more, and they're adding more and more users, what easier place to sell into when you already have that trust? And so to me, that's just a natural thing if you have a new product rather than, you know, let's create a new product and then sell it to a whole bunch of new clients that we've never met before. Well, that's like starting a whole other company. Then, you know, there are entrepreneurs that have multiple companies and that's fine. Um, I've chosen not to to be a a multi-company founder like that. Uh, I'm trying to look for a replacement ladder on some of the things that I do. You you mentioned founder-led sales. And for a long time, this was a founder-led sales organization. We're no longer founder-led sales. Thank goodness I don't have really time to do it, which is amazing. And we have a great staff that does that. But uh, but yeah, I mean, I, so for me, I joined a company right out of college. I joined Oracle and I was probably very lucky to get into that company at the time they were hiring from only, you know, some of the top schools. And um, but I did get a job there and 
I learned a tremendous amount. And after four years, I joined a startup, which moved me to Seattle. We took that company from the basement to the NASDAQ in five years. I became the CEO of that company. We merged it with another company. We had about 950 employees, 125 million in sales. And we merged it with another company. And I, I took the package and went away. They didn't need two CEOs, which is, you know, and part of the reason why I don't want to do the VC route is that I have a I have a longer term plan for the company that will extend beyond my retirement, and I want to be involved in it whenever I do retire. And so we we have plans to that that'll continue if we sell the company or we get VC funded and then sell the company or whatever the liquidity event is. And there, whenever you get a, a partner, there has to be a liquidity event. And you know I'll probably take some liquidity way down the road, but. I want to remain involved. I don't want to just get you know put out to pasture. Um, this is something that that I've taken very personally in terms of the way that we manage our clients, the way we manage our employees. We have a very low turnover of our employee base. Uh, employees here have more opportunity, you know, than they could have other places because we are growing. And yeah, there's a lot of things that I've learned about you know building and preserving a culture. Um, VCs, you could get the right VC partner that could help you, but we just shied away from that. And uh, anyway, so we we listen to our clients though. We, we really wanna do what's right for our clients. That's kind of in short, that's like the best advice that I can give of all the, all the companies that I've ever grown is listen to your clients and make sure you're doing what they're asking because then you're doing it right. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. I also think so much of like the founder-led sales part of this is not only do you wanna learn about your client and why it's hard to like give up founder-led sales is that sales is such brand marketing because, you know, when we bring on SDRs with our clients or when I've been an SDR, you end up interacting with prospective clients about as much as anybody at the company, right? Because the account executives are chasing a small amount of deals, you know, the executive team, maybe they have strategic partnerships, but the SDR, they're talking to, you know, dozens of people a day. Um, and there's a lot of responsibility in maintaining that brand. And that's why founders, you know, they're used to just being the face of every single deal. And obviously you, you aim to, uh, to scale out of that, but it's very hard to lose that sense of control. And I think that like, you know, what I'm hearing from you in terms of entrepreneurship is there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of trade-offs in it. Um, one of them is control versus growth, right? And like that is the super obvious VC example that we've been talking about, which is, you know, you can take in this money, you can give up control of the company and hopefully it's jet fuel. But if you're not flying a rocket, do you really need the jet fuel, you know? And sometimes you don't want to drive the rocket. You want a, a nice boat to take you into uh, retirement and hopefully out of this metaphor. Um, but yeah, I appreciate that. And I, I've really you know, learned a lot to, through this and I appreciate the time today. Um, is there anything else you'd like to, to promote um, or ask for in, in our audience um, as we wrap up? Well, listen, if, if, uh, if anyone in your audience is looking for a mobile data collection app and they want to rapidly deploy apps, I would offer them you know, an opportunity to get a free trial on, mm -hmm. on the platform. And actually, if, if anyone on your podcast starts a free trial. We have a 14 day free trial. If you send me an email, I'll extend that free trial to 28 days and give you 50% off uh, your, your first two months. And all you got to do is send me an email to Kendall at formsonfire.com. Uh, or if you want, you can also, you could scan, you could scan this QR code download, and then you could send to me huh. from that if you download my contact cool. information yep. from that QR code, uh, go ahead and send me an email and just put in the subject line, Super Sam 50. 
and I'll make sure that you get the 50% off and I'll double uh, the length of your free trial. So send that over to me. Mm -hmm. Thanks for asking. Yeah, that's great. Absolutely. Well, Kendall, thank you so much for the time today and we'll be in touch soon.